Welcome to Behind the Knife's Absite Review Series, revamped for the 2024 exam. Want to read along? Do it with our updated Absite Review book. All of this and more can be found on our website, behindthenife.org, and on our brand new, totally awesome Android and iOS apps, which are due out in December. We appreciate your support, and if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. Now, dominate the day and dominate the Absite. Behind the Knife would like to sincerely thank Medtronic for sponsoring the entire 2024 Abside podcast series. Medtronic has a rich history of supporting surgical education, and we couldn't be happier that they chose to partner with Behind the Knife. Their sponsorship goes a long way in supporting us as we develop exciting new content. As surgeons, we know and love Medtronic for their trusted brands like Tri-Staple Technology, V-Lock Barb Suture, ProGrip Mesh, and Ligature Vessel Sealing. With newer products such as the MaxTac Motorized Fixation Device, the newest Ligature XP Maryland, and the Sonicision Curved Jaw Cordless Ultrasonic Device, Medtronic's impact extends well beyond the operating room. Medtronic's mission is engineering the extraordinary. With 90,000 plus people in over 150 countries, Medtronic is committed to accelerating access to healthcare technology, advancing inclusion, diversity, and equity, and protecting our planet. Learn more at Medtronic.com. Okay, Behind the Knife Absite Review. Today we are reviewing a paddlebiliary. This is going to be a long one, so buckle up. Let's start with some anatomy. Kevin, what are the structures of the portal triad? So you got your common bile duct, which is anterior lateral. You have your proper hepatic artery, which is anterior medial. And then posteriorly, you have your portal vein. Yeah, make sure you know what that looks like under ultrasound, because sometimes you'll have uh, a, a picture that just shows the cross-section. And being able to identify those structures on an ultrasound is sometimes a question on the app site. John, what separates the right and left lobes of the liver? Yeah, it's Cantley's line. It's the line between the gallbladder fossa and the IVC. Right. You draw an imaginary, imaginary line between the gallbladder fossa and the IVC. It is uh, not the falciform ligament. Um, those will both be options. So Cantley's line separates the right and left lobes. Kevin, can you describe the venous drainage of the liver? Yeah. So the liver has three hepatic veins uh, that drain directly into the IVC. And then the medial and left hepatic vein usually merge together before draining into the IVC. Perfect. John, let's talk a little bit about that. Aberrant hepatic vascular anatomy. What are the most common aberrant vessels? The most common one is the replaced right hepatic. It normally branches from the proper hepatic artery, but alternatively it can branch off the SMA. It travels behind the pancreas and the common bowel duct. Additionally, you can have a replaced left hepatic, which normally branches from the proper hepatic artery, but I'll tell you, it can branch from the left gastric traveling in the gastrohepatic ligament. Yeah. All right, I got to add a little vascular tidbit here. The replaced left hepatic is what you can get into when you're trying to get a superciliac clamp on a patient and you're in that gastro, dividing that gastrohepatic ligament. So it's something to be really careful of because it's not that infrequently encountered. Yeah, this is, uh, for myself as a foregut surgeon, this is something I also have to watch out for as it travels in that gastrohepatic ligament when I'm doing my anti-reflux procedures or my parasophageal hernias. So both replace right and replace left are, are common. You can run into replace right during cholecystectomies. So these are very clinically relevant and they are frequently tested as well. So know those, aber those common anatomy permutations. Okay, so moving on to benign biliary disease. So, Kevin, treatment for asymptomatic gallstones? Observation. Okay. John, management of uncomplicated symptomatic cholelithiasis? Elective cholecystectomy. 
Okay, what about in pregnancy? Symptomatic cholelithiasis, uh, the patient's uh, pregnant. You know, we used to say, let's wait and defer till after pregnancy. What, what's the current recommendations? So they have a higher rate of spontaneous abortion with non-operative management. So ideally, we perform the laparoscopic colostectomy during the second trimester. Yeah, I think second trimester is is probably the best. The you know latest Sage's guidelines say lap collate really during any trimester for symptomatic cholelithiasis is, is safe. There are a few things with pregnant women as far as positioning and those type of things. What are some pearls and tips there? So we gotta make sure we are very careful in placing ports. So we usually would do this through the open asana technique. But we want to keep the new peritoneum as low as visually possible. Uh, we also want to place a bump under the right side to offload the vena cava, especially late in pregnancy. Yeah, great. Those are good tips. So again, symptomatic cholelithiasis during pregnancy, the recommendation, the official SAGE's clinical practice guidelines say laparoscopic cholecystectomy during any trimester is safe. And so that's been a recent change. So be familiar with that. Okay, Kevin, acute cholecystitis. What's the, how do we do it at a time the cholecystectomy? Uh, generally, we recommend an early cholecystectomy. Yeah. Great. So there's no benefit to waiting and cooling off the the, the gallbladder um, uh, prior to cholecystectomy. So early cholecystectomy for acute cholecystitis, if surgically fit. What about patients who aren't able to really tolerate surgery? So they can get a cholecystostomy tube if they're unable to tolerate surgery. Great. Cholecystostomy tube. What do we? How do we manage that? Was that definitive treatment? No. They eventually need to have a definitive cholecystectomy once they have it improved. Yeah. I'll say for the patients who are uh, poor surgical candidates who get a cholecystostomy tube in the setting of a calculus cholecystitis, you can, at about the six-week mark, four to six weeks, you can perform a cholangiogram through that tube. And if they don't have stones and their cystic duct is open, they don't necessarily need an interval cholecystectomy, but certainly for patients with calculus cholecystitis, once you're able to optimize that, the definitive cholecystectomy is recommended. What about a prophylactic cholecystectomy? John, what kind of patients would benefit from this? Yeah, these are most commonly the sickle cell anemic patients, also patients with porcelain gallbladders. Now, those with large gallstones, usually greater than two and a half centimeters. Those with large polyps, greater than one centimeter, and potentially patients with known gallstones undergoing a bariatric surgery. Okay, perfect. Okay, Kevin, what about cholecystitis? How do you, what raises your suspicion that a patient might have cholecystitis, and how do you manage those patients? Yeah, so generally you'll have a, an idea about cholecystitis based on the preoperative imaging. You can see cl- clinical cholangitis, you can see the bilirubin elevated, you can see elevated LFTs, you can see the common bile duct ele- greater than six millimeters. And so if you're in this situation, you have a few options. You can do a preoperative ERCP if you have that available to you. You can do an IOC in the operating room and a possible laparoscopic common bile duct exploration through the transcystic route, or you can do your lap coli and then get a ERCP afterwards. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think those are all acceptable and a little bit institution specific with the caveat that if the patient does present with cholangitis, that's not the patient you want to take to the operating room. So that's one you want to resuscitate, IV fluids, antibiotics, and emergent biliary drainage. And the preferred method is with ERCP. So that, that should be your answer on the outside for those patients with clinical cholangitis. Don't take those ones to the operating room. But for other patients with cholecystitis, all of those things you mentioned are acceptable options. Now, for patients that you have a moderate suspicion, and maybe they have a few abnormalities on their LFTs, you can obtain an MRCP for better visualization of the biliary system versus doing that IOC like, like you mentioned. 
So let's say, John, that we do an IOC and we see common duck stones during the IOC. What are our, our stepwise approach? So your first step would be attempting to flush the duct after missing glucagon usually one to two milligrams. And you can usually try this up to two, two times. If it's a small stone and you have a large enough cystic duct, you can try a transcystic common bile duct exploration using fluoroscopic guidance or colodocoscope. If it's not amenable to a transcystic approach, then you can perform either a lap or open common bile duct expiration or a post-operative ERCP, depending on the resources available to you and your institution. Great. All right. Nice stepwise approach. So let's say you're doing your IOC, Kevin, and you are you don't visualize the hepatic ducts. What do you do? Yeah, I do love my fluoroscopic images. So in this situation, I would pull the catheter back and try flushing again. Okay. Yeah, you still don't see them. At this point, I'm getting a little more concerned, but I would start with a Trendelenburg to see if I can change the position of the patient and get some backfilling. Yeah. Okay. So it may just be that they're head up and you want gravity to work in your favor, but you need to say, what are you concerned about it if you don't see those hepatic ducts? Yeah. I'm concerned there's an injury to the hepatic duct. Yeah, exactly. So at, th- at this point, you probably want to call for help and get your most experienced hepatobiliary colleague and even consider converting to open to investigate uh, the injury of a hepatic duct. And, th- and that might be the answer on, on the outside. That's what they're getting at is that you have, to, you have an injury that you may do, need to address. So John, another common presentation is gallstone pancreatitis. So when is an ERCP indicated for gallstone pancreatitis? Yeah, an ERCP would be indicated uh, if there's clinical signs of cholangitis. Additionally, if you have a stone an obstruction that does not resolve with a little bit of watchful waiting, you have to perform an ERCP. Yeah, so yeah, yeah I agree. Most of the times with gallstone pancreatitis, the stone's passed. But yeah, if you have evidence of, and so those patients typically don't need an ERCP, but certainly if you have evidence of a persistent common duct stone, or if you have cholangitis, uh, then those patients would need an urgent ERCP. Okay. What about really severe, like they get rip roar and also in pancreatitis. What about the timing of that one? Yeah. So if they have significant peripancreatic fluid collections, you should wait until the collections mature or regress. Okay. What's the role of ERCP um, in, in those patients? In that scenario, an ERCP and sphincterotomy should be performed during the waiting period. Yeah. So the concern there is recurrent gallstone pancreatitis, which is a, a very high risk in these patients. So if you are forced to do an cholecystectomy, an ERCP and sphincterotomy will reduce that recurrence rate. So those can be very challenging patients and difficult to, to time that just right. Uh, John, what about gallstone ileus? What, what's a gallstone ileus? Yeah, gallstone ileus is a small bowel obstruction caused by a gallstone, typically at the IC valve. It's resulting from a cystoenteric fistula, which is usually a fistula to the duo. Yeah, okay. So there's a kind of a clinical triad. What's that clinical triad associated with a gallstone ileus? Yeah, what are you going to look at in the question stem? You'll see a bowel obstruction, a gallstone seen in the intestine, using maybe an x-ray. You might see a gallstone sitting down the right lower quadrant. A pneumobilia on imaging. Yeah, so this is a good image one. that you, They may give you a, a patient with a bowel obstruction and just show you the, the image of like an abdominal series and see you'll see that pneumobilia. And so you'll know that they're going for a gallstone uh, ileus. What's the treatment? The primary goal is to relieve the obstruction. This is how you perform this is doing enterotomy proximal to the obstruction and then milking the stone back and removed it through the enterotomy. Okay, perfect. Yeah. What are you? What about, um, so you're in there, you do that, you, re, you relieve the obstruction, you get the stone out. What are you going to do with the gallbladder? Uh, you want to leave the, gall, the, the gallbladder at that time. Combined procedure is a higher morbidity. 
and the recurrence rates of this are quite low. Yeah, so in general, you don't want to perform the concurrent cholecystectomy after you relieve the obstruction. You can consider it in very select circumstances. So if the patient is totally stable and they have a nasty gangrenous cholecystitis, in other words, you, you kind of need to do it for source control. So if the patient's stable and you really need to do it, you can do it. But in general, uh, just relieve the obstruction and uh, leave that gallbladder behind. Uh, what about, uh, Kevin, let's, uh, let's go back to you. Uh, what is Maritzi syndrome and how do we manage it? Yeah, so this is when you have external compression of the common hepatic duct from a stone within the cystic duct. So an ERCP will demonstrate a normal appearing common bile duct with external compression of the common hepatic duct. And I would manage this with a cholecystectomy. Yeah, these can there can be a lot of inflammation and scar tissue in these, so they can be very challenging. And sometimes you'll have to do a subtotal cholecystectomy, and that's okay in order to avoid damage to the common duct. John, so sometimes we'll get patients in clinic with gallbladder polyps. So what's the most common etiology of gallbladder polyps, and how do we manage these? The majority of these are benign hyperplastic polyps. The management depends on size as well as symptomology. So if they're symptomatic, you want to perform a cholecystectomy. If they're asymptomatic, you want to perform a cholecystectomy that's greater than 10 millimeters in size. If it's over 18 millimeters, you want to treat it as a gallbladder cancer until proven otherwise. And polyps over 6 millimeters need serial imaging or consider surgery to avoid the need for surveillance. Yeah, so I'd say most of these are going to eventually end up taken out. So if they're symptomatic, certainly... If there's polyps and there's associated stones, those actually have an increased risk of uh, gallbladder cancer long-term, so you should take those out. Certainly over 10 millimeters of size, as they get larger, there's an association with gallbladder cancer. And sometimes patients just don't want to undergo that serial imaging, so that'd be another indication to take it out. Okay, so Kevin, what causes biliary strictures following cholecystectomy, and how do you manage them? Yeah, many times this can be iatrogenic, either a partial transection, a partial clip placement, or a thermal injury to the common bile duct. Okay, and yeah, so a lot of times they, they can present late too. Those thermal injuries can even present years down the road with a biliary stricture. So uh, how about management? So it kind of depends on how symptomatic and what the symptoms are. If there's no biliary leakage, there's it could be some endoscopic management of this with like a balloon dilation. If there's a stricture that's recurrent or unresponsive dilation, you may need surgical intervention. Okay, great. So, John, so just to wrap up our discussion of benign biliary pathology, talk to me about sphincter of OD dysfunction. This can be somewhat challenging, so how do we manage these? Yeah, typically nowadays we'll manage with the endoscopic sphincterotomy. That is a preferred method. Uh, historically, we do a transduodenal sphincteroplasty. You'd uh, perform a sphincterotomy at the 11 o'clock position, I suture the wall of the common bile duct to the duodenal mucosa. Yeah, speak for Bode is, is often a diagnosis of exclusion. It's relatively rare. You know, definitive diagnosis is made with ERCP and manometry performed by gastroenterology. Okay, so let's move on to a different subject. We're going to talk about now about portal hypertension. So, John, what is the hepatic vein pressure gradient? It's the gradient between the wedged hepatic vein pressure and the free hepatic vein pressure. Uh, this requires passage of a balloon catheter into hepatic vein under fluoroscopy. I mean, what's normal? Normal is less than six millimeters of mercury, and portal hypertension is greater than six millimeters of mercury. Okay. Kevin, what do we see clinically with portal hypertension? Yeah, so you're going to see portosystemic venous collaterals. These patients will have ascites. 
when it gets towards the end stage, you get hepatic encephalopathy and hepatosplenomegaly. Okay, John, what's the relationship between the site of the increased portal resistance and its etiology? So I'm talking about, you know, that pre-sinusoidal, sinusoidal, post-sinusoidal, break that down for me. Yeah, this can give you some idea of what's going on. So pre-sinusoidal, the most common cause of this is schistosomiasis. Sinusoidal is alcoholic cirrhosis and viral hepatitis. And post-sinusoidal, the most common cause is Bud Chiari syndrome. Yeah, and then there's also some mixed disorders. So, you know, like primary biliary cirrhosis has both a, a pre-sinusoidal component and a sinusoidal component. Good job. How about the collateral circulation in the setting of portal hypertension? Where do we see this? This is where the spiked venous system meets the systemic drainage. For example, the distal esophagus and proximal stomach, that's where you have your esophageal submucosal veins to the proximal gastric veins. Also in the rectum, where you have the IMV to the pedundal vein, the umbilicus, where the vestigial umbilical vein meets the left portal vein, and the retroperitoneum, where the mesenteric and ovarian veins meet. Great. Perfect. Okay, so let's move on to management of portal hypertension. So, Kevin, what, what are some ways that we manage portal hypertension? Yeah, so we'll start with our pharma pharmacologic methods. So you use splanchnic vasoconstrictors in the acute settings, such as vasopressin and octreotide. Uh, you can also use non-selective beta blockers for prophylaxis, such as propanolol. And then for endoscopic management, uh, there's variceal banding for bleeding. Um, you, you can do this for the acute issue, or you can prophylactically do it. What's the role of uh, TIPS for portal hypertension? Yeah, TIPS is huge. Um, this really uh, helps decompress the portal system. And so it's used for acute or recurrent variceal bleeding or refractory ascites or bud syndrome or hepatic hydrothorax. Yeah, I will say that it's not the best for ascites, but certainly for those other things that you mentioned, it could be potential indications. But what's the concern with TIPS? What's the downside? Yeah, it can certainly worsen the hepatic encephalopathy. Yeah, yeah. often that hepatic encephalopathy will get worse. So there, there is definitely a downside. John, we mentioned these varices, and we can get acute esophageal variceal bleeding, which is a, a bad day for everybody. So how do we manage these patients? Yeah, so we want to start resuscitation immediately, and that includes your transfusion. You also want to start antibiotics. You may need to intubate for airway protection. And our next step is controlling the bleeding. The most definitive way of doing this is with endoscopy, but we can also place some type of balloon tamponade, just say Blakemore tube, as a temporizing measure. We also want to make sure we start octreotide during this time. If we can't control the bleeding with endoscopy, we might have to perform emergent tips. Yeah, great. So, you know, TIPS has, has really kind of changed the game. There are some really more historical surgical options for these, you know, gastroesophageal devascularization procedures, but those are infrequently done, if ever anymore, and they're even more infrequently tested. So we're not going to go into that. But what is sometimes tested are some different options for portosystemic shunts. So Kevin, I'm going to throw this to you. We have, you know, selective shunts, we have non-selective shunts. We have partial non-selective shunts. So walk us through those because those do every once in a while show up. Yeah. So for the selective shunts, this only decompresses a part of the portal venous system. So the kind of classic one is the splenorenal shunt where we hook up this renal vein to the splenic vein that can help decompress the portal system. And then you have your partial non-selective shunts. And this is where you do like a PTFE graft and you can choose the size of it to help kind of limit the flow through it. 
And then you have your non-selective shunt. So this is where you literally just do a portal cable shunt. You sew the portal vein to the IVC. So you're completely, basically like a, an open tips sort of procedure. But this has high rates of encephalopathy and complicates liver transplant later. Great. Perfect. Okay. So let's move out of portal hypertension and let's talk about some liver abscesses. So John, what types of abscesses can be found in the liver and how are they managed? So your most common abscess is your pyogenic abscess. And it's usually secondary to a biliary tract infection or a GI source, such as diverticulitis or appendicitis. We manage this with a percutase drain and antibiotics. Additionally, you can have an amoebic abscess. A typical presentation on the test is a patient with a liver abscess after travel to Mexico. We diagnose with circulating anti-amoebic antibodies. Management for this is metronidazole, and it rarely needs drainage. So the last one is a chytococcal cyst or a hydatid cyst. The diagnosis of this is a characteristic double-walled cyst on CT. The labs you would see for this type is an ELISA test, an indirect hematagglutination test, an indirect immunofluorensis antibody test, a latex agglutination test. Those would be positive for a hydatid cyst. The management is albendazole followed by drainage. Uh, you want to drain these using the pair technique, puncture, aspiration, injection, and then re-aspiration. And also consider surgical resection for a, for a very large cyst. Yeah, so frequently what's asked on the outside is, which is the most common liver abscess? And again, Kevin, which is the most common? Just pyogenic. Yeah, pyogenic. So you'll have options of pyogenic versus uh, parasitic. So pyogenic, most likely due to the GI source, diverticulitis, appendicitis, E. coli is the most common pathogen. So that is really the kind of the highest yield thing there for the outside. Okay, so next up is uh, cystic compatibility lesions. So let's talk about cholidocal cysts. John, what are cholidocal cysts? Cholidocal cysts, there is an unknown etiology to them, but likely secondary to an anomalous uh, biliary pancreatic duct junction with reflux of pancreatic enzymes. It's a long, common BP duct. Most are identified and treated early in childhood. It is a pediatric disease, typically. It can cause pain, biliary obstruction, and cirrhosis, and they do carry a malignant potential. Yeah, so we'll talk a little bit about management, and then specifically with that you know, malignant potential. But there's a classification system that really everybody needs to know, because it is frequently tested. It's the, it's the Todani classification system. So uh, let's just go through them. So uh, Kevin, what's a type one cholidocal cyst? So that's the fusiform dilation of the extrahepatic biliary tree. Right. Fusiform dilation, extrahepatic biliary tree. How do you treat them? This is resection with hepaticojejunostomy. Type one resection, hepaticojejunostomy. And John, a type two cholidocal cyst. That's the saccular diverticulum of the common bowel duct. And you treat it with the excision of the cyst. Okay, good. So type 2, saccular diverticulum, common bile duct, cyst excision is a treatment. Okay, Kevin, type 3, cholidocal cyst. Yeah, so this is dilation of the intramural duct. Well, yeah, otherwise known as? Cholidopocele. Yeah, so type 3 is cholidopocele. How do you manage those? So you can approach these transduodenally, and you can do a transduodenal excision or sphincteroplasty. Yeah, the way it's typically worded is a sphincteroplasty. So type 3, cholidopocele, sphincteroplasty. John, so type 4, there's a type 4A and a type 4B. Break those down. Yeah, type 4A, multiple dilations of intra and extra hepatic ducts. You treat it with hepatic resection and biliary reconstruction. Type 4B, multiple dilations of only extra hepatic ducts. Excision and hepatic hydrogenostomy. Okay, perfect. And then Kevin, type 5? So this is multiple dilations of intrahepatic ducts or Coriolis disease. Okay, and treatment? Transplant. 
Okay. Yeah. You can't have one attempt at a, a partial resection depending on the distribution, but the tip of the, you know, the thing to remember is multiple dilations of the intrahepatic ducts, Corolli's disease, and the treatment is typically a liver transplantation. Okay. So more commonly seen than cholidocal cysts are the simple hepatic cysts. So what's the management of a simple hepatic cyst, John? So no treatment if these are asymptomatic. If they are symptomatic, you can do a laparoscopic cyst fetistration, and then you want to send the capsule to pathology. What about aspirin? Can't you just aspirate it? Your IR says, I got a great target. Let me just aspirate it. Well, apparently it's a 100% recurrence rate with aspiration alone. Okay. And what if you're concerned for an abscess, a hydatid cyst, or a malignancy like we said before? You want to aspirate and send a cytology. Okay, great. Okay, so now we're going to start working through some different hepatobiliary tumors. So let's start with the most common one, the hepatic hemangioma. So John, what can you tell me about a hepatic hemangioma? Yeah, it's the most common liver tumor. It's female predominance. It's caused by congenital vascular malformations. How does it present? Present generally asymptomatic. It can cause pain or compressive symptoms. Rarely where you have hemorrhage from these, also rare will be inflammation or coagulopathy. So I've heard of this thing called the Kassebach-Merritt syndrome. What is Kassebach-Merritt syndrome? It's hemangioma plus consumptive coagulopathy and thrombocytopenia. Okay. And so sometimes you'll see that. They'll give you laboratory values in somebody with a large hemangioma, and they'll ask you what's going on. And again, it's a consumptive coagulopathy. Now, hemangiomas have some pretty characteristic imaging. And what I'll tell everybody who's listening is, Go to our website companion. There's an excellent image in there that that has uh, examples of how these different tumors look on imaging. We're going to talk through it um, as you review that. But on the exam, you're going to be expected to be able to recognize these tumors on the actual images. So be sure to review that. So for a hepatic hemangioma, what are the characteristic findings on CT and MRI, John? So CT, you have a hypodense lesion pre-contrast. It will enhance peripheral to central and in the arterial phase. And then you also have persistent contracts on delayed series. Okay. So hypodense precontrast, peripheral to central enhancement in the arterial phase, and persistent contrast on the delayed series. Okay. How about an MRI? MRI will be hypo intense on T1 and hyper intense on T2. Okay. Treatment? The treatment for these is just observation for asymptomatic lesions, regardless of size. There's not really any risk of rupture. For symptomatic lesions, you want to resect these. Okay. All right. So that's hepatic mangioma. So moving on from there, let's talk about focal nodular hyperplasia. Kevin, what's the epidemiology of focal nodular hyperplasia? Yeah, so this is the second most common liver tumor, and it's found in women around 30 to 50 years old. And how does it present? It's normally found incidentally on imaging. It's also normally asymptomatic. Yeah, and sometimes you'll even see the uh, all liver, and so you kind of need to know how to recognize what they look like. What do you see on imaging with these? Yeah, so it's well demarcated and has rapid arterial enhancement with a central stellate scar. Yeah, that central stellate scar. That's the buzzword for focal nodular hyperplasia. What about on MRI? On MRI, it'll be hypointense with a central scar in T1, and then it'll be isointense with hyperintense scar in T2. So what, how do you treat these? Do we need to worry about these when we see them? Nope. There's no malignant potential and there's no bleeding risk. Perfect. Okay. So next is a hepatic adenoma. So John, epidemiology of a hepatic adenoma. These are also rare. They're associated with oral contraceptive use and androgen steroid use. 
They do have a malignant transformation rate about 10%, and the risk of rupture increases with size. So there's about 30% risk of spontaneous bleeding in tumors greater than 5 centimeters. Right. So in contrast to that FNH, the adenomas do have a malignant potential, and they are at risk of rupturing. And so how do they present? They present with pain, abdominal fullness, abnormal LFTs, or bleeding from the rupture. Okay. And what do these look like on imaging? So in CT, uh, you get arterial enhancement with washout on portal phase. Uh, do not usually demonstrate a delayed washout. You'll have, see a smooth surface with a tumor capsule and no central scar. On MRI, you have a mildly hyper-intense on T1 and T2. Okay, great. Uh, yeah, so again, no central scar with this. Arterial enhancement and washout on the portal phase. That's what you're looking for. What do you want to do with these? How do we treat them? So in small lesions, less than five centimeters, you want to discontinue oral contraceptives and it may be regressed. Larger lesions, uh, lesions greater than five centimeters or no regression after stopping the oral contraceptives you want to resect. Obviously, if they're ruptured, IR embolization would be your first go-to and then resect in an elective setting. Okay. Yeah. And again, a lot of that has to do with that malignant potential you want to, and the risk of rupture. So you want to resect these. It frequently shows up on the test that they'll have a small, you know, two to three centimeter adenoma and a, a, a female on OCPs. And the first step, as John mentioned, is to discontinue those OCPs and it may spontaneously regress after that. Okay, so now let's talk a little bit about hepatocellular carcinoma. And so, Kevin, what are some risk factors for hepatocellular carcinoma? Yeah, so hepatitis B, hepatitis C, cirrhosis of any cause. Inherited errors of metabolism, such as hemochromatosis or alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, and aflatoxin. Yeah, and I think what all those things have in common is those are, those are things that cause liver inflammation. So yeah, those are all great risk factors. Now, these also have characteristic imaging bindings. So what are those? Yeah, so in CT scan, you're going to have hypervascular lesions that are hyperintense during the arterial phase, and then hypodense during the delayed phase. Okay, so let's say that we, we have a tumor that has those characteristic findings, and then we also have an elevated AFP. So do those patients need a biopsy? No. Okay, great. So characteristic on imaging and elevated AFP don't necessarily need a biopsy for diagnosis. Is there any role for PET-CT in hepatocellular carcinoma? Yeah, PET-CT doesn't add anything to the workup here. Okay, yeah, so no role for PET in hepatocellular carcinoma. How about, where do these, how do these metastasize? Where is the most common site for them to go? I believe it's hematogenous and it goes to the lung. Right, yeah. So the most common site of a metastasis is, a, is the lung. So we certainly need to include that in your staging workup. So, okay, what's the management of hepatocellular carcinoma? So if you have a solitary mass without major vascular invasion, and if you resect it and there would be adequate liver function, resection is the best treatment. Okay. Yeah, yeah, resection is possible, but controversial for limited major vascular invasion or with multifocal disease. That is still resectable, but that's a little bit uh, more controversial. Now, you mentioned leaving enough normal liver. So how much functional liver remnant is needed? Yeah, the liver's pretty remarkable. If there's no evidence of cirrhosis, you only need to leave 20 to 25% of the liver. If they have child's class A cirrhosis, you need to leave 30 to 40% of the liver. How do you, what's the best way of, you know, determining what that function, functional liver remnant is? Yeah, nowadays with CT and MRI and 3D reconstructions, they're able to determine this. Okay, so uh, what would you do if you, you do that and it turns out you're going to have less than that, you know, 20 to 25% in no cirrhosis or 30 to 40% with child's A cirrhosis? 
So what you can actually do is you can do a, a preoperative portal vein embolization of the disease size to cause hypertrophy of the other part of the liver. Perfect. Yep, exactly. So again, so no cirrhosis or child class A and it's early stage, you want to do a resection. So how about for those with moderate to severe cirrhosis and still early stage hepatocellular carcinoma? What are we, should we consider then? So this would be a good uh, patient for transplant. And are there any criteria that to look to when determining if, if the patient is a candidate for transplant in hepatocellular carcinoma? Absolutely. There's the Milan criteria. And what this states is that if you have one lesion under five centimeters, or you have three or fewer lesions that are all less than three centimeters with no gross vascular or extrahepatic spread, you can do a liver transplant. You usually perform neoadjuvant chemotherapy prior to the transplant. No, you beat me to it. That was the exact point I was about to make. So yeah, you, these patients will get neoadjuvant chemotherapy uh, prior to the transplant. How about like some local regional uh, therapies? I've heard of things like TACE and you know these chemoembolization. What? Who are candidates for that therapy? Yeah, so these patients generally cannot tolerate a, a curative surgical treatment, and so this can be a bridge to curative therapy for them. Okay, and, and what are the different options? So kind of in broad strokes, you have the ablative therapies, you have the arterial-directed therapies, and you have external beam radiation therapy. Okay, so who, what lesions are best for ablation? So you have radiofrequency, cryoablation, microwave. Yeah, so these are better for small lesions less than 5 centimeters. Okay. Well, how about uh, the taste, that uh, transarterial chemoembolization taste? Yeah. Th- when you have a bigger lesion, like greater than five centimeters, they don't qualify for the ablation anymore. This is where the arterial directed with the taste. Okay. So again, considered for larger tumors, unresectable, greater than five centimeters. Okay. And you said something about external beam radiation therapy? Yeah. So if this is a patient that has unresectable disease or not amenable to ablation or taste. Okay. Perfect. So, John, back to you. So, let's talk about cholangiocarcinoma. So, moving on from hepatocellular carcinoma now into cholangiocarcinoma, what are the features of cholangiocarcinoma? Yeah, we classify cholangiocarcinoma as intrahepatic or extrahepatic disease. Okay, and what are some risk factors? So, just like the liver, inflammation of the bile ducts is the main risk factor, including primary sclerosis and cholangitis, bile duct stones, Cholodocosis, liver fluke in- infections, HBV, and HCV. Okay, so let's first tackle intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. What are some management principles for intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma? So the first thing is that we don't have to buy off and biopsy these if they're concerning radiographically and clinically suggesting malignancy. Uh, you will, can do a diagnostic laparoscopy to rule out disseminated disease, and that is most common. Lymph metastases past portohepatitis and distant metastases contraindicate resection. And multifocal liver disease is generally not amenable to resection as well. Hepatic resection with negative margin is the goal, usually through a formal anatomic resection, but you can also do a wedge resection or a segmental resection. Now, what's the rule for, you know, like hepatocellular carcinoma, we could do a, a transplant for, you know, sometimes that multifocal disease. Is that an option for cholangiocarcinoma? No, not in multifocal cholangiocarcinoma. Right. So for multifocal hepatocellular carcinoma, you know, you can uh, transplant as long as you meet the Milan criteria. But uh, for cholangiocarcinoma, that is not an option. Okay. Now, Kevin, let's talk about extrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. So what are some basic principles for management of extrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma? Yeah, so it's kind of the standard 
ontologic principles of you need to do a complete resection with negative margins with a regional lymphadenectomy. Okay. Well, how about Hyler? Let's talk about Hyler cholangiogenic carcinoma. Yes. In order for this to be resectable, the contralateral hemiliver must be intact as far as arterial portal flow and biliary drainage with, uninvolved with the tumor. Okay. Okay. And, and what's involved with that resection here? At the high limbs, so you're going to have to do, uh, I would imagine, some type of reconstruction, right? Exactly. Generally, you're going to end up doing a Roux-en-Y hepaticojejunostomy. Yep, that's right. Resection with Roux-en-Y hepaticojejunostomy. Okay. Uh, one more, Kevin. Um, how about the surgical management of a, a distal cholangiocarcinoma? So it's very distal on the duct. Right. So at this point, now you're doing a Whipple. Yep. Pancreaticoduodenectomy. Perfect. Okay. Uh, John. Let's move on out of the liver and into the gallbladder. So gallbladder cancer, very rare, but what are some risk factors? Yeah, there's lots of risk factors here. So Mexican-Americans, Native Americans, females, obesity, large gallstones greater than three centimeters, going back to that inflammation thing, chronic inflammation, porcelain gallbladder, which is a much lower risk than previously thought, polyps greater than one centimeter, typhoid infection, primary sclerosing cholangitis, segmental mucosal calcifications, and finally anomalous pancreabiliary junction. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of risk factors there, a lot of things that in increase inflammation. The yeah, porcelain gallbladder was previously thought to be a very high risk. Now it's probably a very low risk. It's, it's been overblown, but absolutely. So, and I think probably the, these are, these are most often discovered incidentally at the time of cholecystectomy for symptomatic gallbladder disease is the way you'll see this both clinically and, and, and actually on the test. That's what will happen. You'll have a patient that underwent a cholecystectomy and you know, pathology, lo and behold, it's gallbladder cancer. So how do we, what do we do in that situation, John? So this guides our next surgical management. So if we found a tumor, a T1A tumor that just invades the lamina propria then we're okay with cholecystectomy alone. If we have a T1B and greater, which invades the muscle layer of the gallbladder, then we need to do, we already done the cholecystectomy, but we also do a limited hepatic resection, typically the segments 4B and 5, and also a portal uh, lymphadenectomy. Yeah, and it, you know, more extensive resection might be required for advanced and larger tumors uh, to obtain negative margins. But the way you're going to see it on the upside is going to be that you're going to make that distinction between the T1A and 1B, so you need to know that. So essentially, if it's invading the muscle layer, you know you have to do more, which is a segment 4B5 resection, 4B5, and that's the way it'll be listed on the exam. And don't forget that portal lymphadenectomy along with that. Okay, well, uh, that's uh, um, a great review of, of uh, biliary. so let's uh, end it off with some quick hits. You guys ready? Absolutely. Let's go. All right. So, Kevin, what hepatic vein pressure gradient is typically required for a variceal rupture? Yeah, I think about around 12 is when you have that risk. Yep, that's when you get concerned at 12. John, what is the actual definition of portal hypertension? That's when your hepatic vein pressure gradient is 6 millimeters of mercury or higher. Okay, great. Kevin, what are the components of the child's PU score? So that'll be your bilirubin, your albumin, your prothrombin time, and your encephalopathy and ascites. Yeah, bilirubin, albumin, prothrombin, the presence of encephalopathy, and the presence of ascites. John, what are the components of the MELD score? That's bilirubin, INR, creatinine, and sodium. Yep, bilirubin, INR, creatinine, and sodium. Perfect. Uh, at what MELD score do has it been shown that patients have a survival benefit with transplantation? 
once you get to 15. Yep, 15. Okay, and John. So you have a patient with colorectal cancer and an isolated liver met. He received neoadjuvant Fulfox therapy, and then he's restaged, which showed a complete radiologic response. What's your next step? You still perform hepatic resection as complete pathologic responses is rare. Yeah, so that's kind of the same principle as rectal cancer that is clinically resolved after neoadjuvant therapy. So, Kevin, patient with an asymptomatic colothysis and a 5-millimeter gallbladder polyp, what do you do? You do a cholecystectomy in this situation. Yeah, so why is that? I thought we said that, you know, polyps under a centimeter don't need cholecystectomy, and those under 6 millimeters don't even need surveillance. So why are you doing it in this situation? Well, there is a little bit of a risk of malignant transformation within the gallbladder polyps has been leaked when they have concurrent cholelithiasis. Good, great. Okay, so John, what's the highest negative predictive value test for cholelithiasis? That's your GGT. A normal GGT has 97% negative predictive value. Great, okay. Okay, Kevin, so you have a patient with a prior Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, and now they come in with cholelithiasis. What's the problem, and what do you got to do? Well, now you've bypassed their stomachs. You can't easily get there with an ERCP. So you do a transgastric ERCP or an advanced double balloon endoscopy. Cool. Yep. Transgastric ERCP. They're actually fun cases. So John, what is the significance of a hepatocellular cancer found in a young patient without cirrhosis? All right. So this is the fibrolamellar variant of hepatocellular carcinoma. It has a better prognosis, but recurrence is common. The marker we use for this, Jason... Oh, that's neurotensin, and that's very testable. So fibrolamellar variant, young patients, hepatocellular cancer, neurotensin is a marker. That, you will see that. So, uh, Kevin, incidentally, you have an incidentally found adenocarcinoma invading the lamina propria layer of the gallbladder following cholecystectomy. Uh, what's your next step? No further treatment. Cholecystectomies alone is enough in this scenario. Okay, and just to, to revisit, let's say it in, invaded the, 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 the muscularis. What do you do then? Well, then you need to do your concomitant liver resection. Yeah, segment 4B5 and? Portal lymphadenectomy. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, to add that lymphadenectomy. And also, don't forget the stage of the patient, too. So CT, chest out in the pelvis, tumor marker, CA199, CEA. So don't forget your staging. So let's say, Johnny, we're in that same situation. or We've gone back. We've done our resection. What about, I've heard people say you should excise the port sites from the, your lap coli in this setting. Do we need to do that? No, it's not been demonstrated to be an oncologic benefit. Yeah, so don't need to do that. Okay, back to you, Kevin. What is the uh, significance of uh, isolated gastric varices? So this is most commonly caused by splenic vein thrombosis, secondary to pancreatitis. Yeah, okay, right. Okay, and what's the treatment? Splenectomy. Splenectomy, perfect. John, you have a patient that's four weeks after hospitalization for a car accident that had a liver laceration, was managed non-operatively, but now presents with an upper GI bleed. What's your first step, and what do you want to do? So the first step, just like mostly all upper GI bleeds, is an EGD. If you see blood coming from the duodenal papilla, you have to be concerned about hepatic artery biliary duct fistula, and the treatment for this would be angioembolization. Perfect. Yep, EGD, make the diagnosis, treat with angioembolization. Okay, so let's go over some different segmental resections of the liver. And I want you to tell me which segments you take out with these particular resections. It's a little confusing, but it'll make sense. So, so Kevin, let's say you're doing a right liver resection. What liver segments do you take out with a right liver resection? Five through eight. Yeah, five through eight. Okay, John, a left liver resection. 
This is two through four plus or minus the caudate. Okay. Kevin, a left lateral segmentectomy. What segments are involved in that? Two and three. Okay. John, what, extended right, which is also known as a right trisectionectomy. That's five through eight plus the four segment. Okay. What about an extended left? That's two through four plus five and eight. Yeah, so it's a good idea just to have a map in your head of the liver because sometimes uh, you will have to identify these liver segments based on description. We do have a good image inside the companion, so memorize that image and have that liver map in your head and know where those segments are. Um, okay, that does it for hepatobiliary. Um, I hope everybody found it helpful. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, and thank you to Medtronic for supporting surgical residents preparing for the 2024 site. Since 1949, Medtronic has relentlessly pursued therapies that change lives. Today, we thank Medtronic for supporting surgical residents as they relentlessly pursue their dreams. From all of us at Behind the Knife and Medtronic, dominate the ab site.